Hey, as we start this morning, uh, we're going to do something a little different, okay? We're going to have an open mic for about five minutes. And here's the subject. You're going to get to share the craziest dream you've ever had with all the people in the room, okay? So I'm, if nobody raises their hand, I'm going to call on you first. Nobody's making eye contact with me. We're not really going to do that. You knew that, right? I just wanted to get you thinking about the weird and craziness of dreams. Earlier this week, I had, this is a true story, on Tuesday night, I had a dream that I was doing a funeral for a distant family member. And it was one of those dreams where you know everybody in the dream, but in real life, you're like, I don't know any of these people. And in your dream, you know that. You're like, I'm dreaming. I don't know you people. This is one of those dreams. But I was getting ready to like, start the funeral service, and I had a major problem. I could not remember the lady's name to save my life. And I thought, this is not going to be good. So I ran over and I grabbed my notes because I would write her name down in my notes, right? Open up my notes and I realized these aren't my notes. There are numbers. There are symbols. There's no English on there. I've grabbed my kid's homework assignment. And so I'm like, I'm literally staring blankly. And for some reason, there was this really weird quote. And I, I just started by reading the quote and everybody laughed. I was like, that's a good start. And then I just had to fake the rest of the funeral service. I could not remember the lady in the casket's name to save my life. And so I start faking it. Everybody starts to know. And this is, this, is, this is the way the dream went. A guy gets up out of his seat about five, maybe 10 minutes in, walks up to me and lunges at me. And I jumped back. I thought he was going to choke me. He hugged me. And he, he pulled me in tight and he said, hey, I hate to leave but I've got an appointment, but I want you to know you're doing good and God loves you. And I was like, I really needed to hear that right now. Thank you. So he goes to leave and I thought, this is my chance. And so I, I motioned to everybody in the crowd. I'm like, hey, give me just a second. And I call him over and I like make sure nobody on the microphone can hear me. And I said, hey, can you do me a favor? I cannot remember her name. What is her name? And he's, he looks at me and I don't know this man in my dream. I know him. He looks at me, he goes, her name's Linda and storms out of the room. And at this, at this point, everybody knows. And I'm like, oh, this is terrible. It's just one of those dreams where I woke up and I was like, oh, thank God that was a dream. It was awful. It was awkward. You ever have a dream like that? In the moment, like you, it, it's so vivid. It's so real. And then you wake up and you're thinking, I don't What's that mean? How do you, how do you describe a dream like that? Well, dreams just kind of work like that sometimes. And today we're going to do a little dream analysis together. There's a dream that's recorded for us in Daniel chapter four that we're going to look at together. We're going to look at it at all its weirdness. It's vivid. It's terrifying, and we're going to ask the question, well, what does it mean, and why does it, why does it matter for us? So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel's in the Old Testament. He's right after the books of Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, so feel free to turn there. But while you're turning there, I just want to say a quick note. For those of you that are joining us on our reading plan, we're almost there. We're almost to the New Testament. We're the part of the Old Testament that just feels like it bogs down a little bit. But mark your calendar for next Tuesday, August the 24th. That's the glorious day that we enter in to the New Testament. I'm really looking forward to that day. But if you have fallen off the wagon, if you haven't been reading and you really you intended to, just join us in the New Testament. You can start reading ahead in the New Testament. We're, we're excited to end this year focusing specifically on Jesus. But for the last few weeks, we've been slowing down a little bit and we've been looking at the life of this young Hebrew teenager named Daniel. And, and we're looking at the life of him and some of his friends. And we're trying to learn some lessons about how do you live in a world that is hostile towards your faith in God? How do you live in a world that opposes the things of God and, and more specifically, the way of Jesus? What does that look like for us? And today we're going to pick it up in Daniel chapter four. But before we jump into Daniel four, there's two things you need to know about this chapter that make it really, really unique. 
first off, it records a dream for us that is, it's very vivid. It's kind of weird. So that's the first part of it. But what makes this chapter of scripture so unique is who wrote it. It was written by someone that you would never, ever, ever expect to write a chapter of scripture. And as it turns out, it wasn't written by Daniel, the guy that's written everything else. It was written by Daniel's boss, Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar was known for being an evil pagan king. He was ruthless towards his enemies. This is not a guy you would expect to, to, to write down a chapter of scripture. But here's what you need to know. At this period of time, we've said this every week, the Babylonian empire in Daniel's day was the strongest world empire that there was, which made Nebuchadnezzar the most powerful man in all of the world. But there's a little interesting historical thing that I learned this week. There's three ancient uh, three Nebuchadnezzars that ruled over ancient Babylon, okay? And this, this will help. This will make sense a little later. So just hang with me. Nebuchadnezzar I ruled before the time of Daniel. And then his son, Nebuchadnezzar II, ruled during Daniel chapters 1 through 3. And today we're going to look at Nebuchadnezzar III, or a man that's named Nabonidus. Now hold on to that because it's going to make sense in about 15 to 20 minutes. But you need to know this, okay? Today we're going to look at an episode from this man's life a dream that he had. Um, but here's what you need to know about all of the Nebuchadnezzars. They were wealthy. They were powerful. They were ruthless towards their enemies. And as we're going to see today, specifically, Nebuchadnezzar III, or Nabonidus, struggled with the sin of pride. And pride is a very, very dangerous thing. It causes us to be arrogant and to assume that we're better than people around us. And pride can even fool us into thinking that we know better than God. C.S. Lewis referred to pride as the great sin because he said, you hate it when you see it in other people, but you're blind to it inside of yourself. And that was certainly one of Nebuchadnezzar's problems. But here's the big issue with pride. Pride is what really separates us from God. Pride is what fuels all of our sinful rebellion against God. And for those of us that follow Jesus, pride is what keeps us from becoming more and more like him all the time. And so you got to ask a question, well, what are we going to learn from this arrogant, evil, pagan king? What, what could he possibly teach us on the subject of pride? Well, you might be surprised. Look at how he begins in Daniel chapter 4, verse 1. These are the words of King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. Verse 2, it's my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. So in his scripture writing debut, this evil pagan king begins by writing a worship song for the God of Israel. And that would have been a really big surprise. This would have been out of character for him. And so we got to stop and ask the question, like, what in the world happened in this man's life that would cause him to turn his heart towards God? And what's really fascinating, as we read today, he's going to tell us about a chain of events that took place in his life, and we're going to learn it from his own words. This isn't someone else's account. This is Nebuchadnezzar's account. It begins in verse 4. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. In other words, he says, look, life was good for me. I was chilling at the palace, sitting by the pool, sipping cocktails, making TikToks. I had all kind of time. Everybody did what I told them to do. Life was a dream for me. 
until I had a dream that wrecked my world. Verse five, I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians and the enchanters and the astrologers and the diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Now, a lot of scholars would say it's no secret that Nebuchadnezzar was not a deeply, he wasn't spiritual, but he, he may have been religious. And here's the difference. He would have gone through like the religious motions. He might have sacrificed or built a statue or, or whatever you would do to a pagan god, but he wasn't going to bow down to anyone because he's the most powerful man in the world and everybody would bow down to him. But just like the rest of us mortals, when something would freak him out, he would hedge his bets with God. And so here, what he would do is he called in all of his Babylonian mystics to interpret this terrifying dream that he had, but none of them could give him a good answer. And this is where our God, the God of Israel, steps in. Look at verse eight. Finally, Daniel came into my presence and I told him the dream. He's called Belteshazzar after the name of my God and the spirit of the holy gods lives in him. Now that is a phrase that is repeated a few different times in Daniel chapter four and five. But here's what we learn. After all of Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonian religion had failed him, he finally turned to Daniel because he knew that there was something different about Daniel. Daniel had a different relationship with his God. When Daniel interacted with his God, things happened. And did you catch how he referred to Daniel? He says, his name's Daniel, but we named him a different name after one of our Babylonian gods, trying, almost trying to claim Daniel for their own. But he says, but the spirit of the holy gods lived inside of him. There was just something different about Daniel that set him apart from everyone else. Now, it's worth noting that up at this point in time, Daniel knew there was, or Nebuchadnezzar knew there was something different about Daniel and his gods, but he had only been impressed by them. He hadn't really been transformed by Daniel's God by putting his faith in him. And I want you to think about this. There's a big difference between being impressed with God or being transformed by him. Nebuchadnezzar may have been impressed, but he wasn't transformed. And so I want you to think about like this. Let's stop and make this personal for me and you. Do you ever tend to be like Nebuchadnezzar in this regard? Are you just impressed with the potential of what God can do for you? Or have you been transformed by God's power in your life? I mean, how many times are we like Nebuchadnezzar? We become proud of our accomplishments. We become content with our life. And we're satisfied to pretend that we're impressed by God's power. And we might give him a golf clap on occasion. Like, that's pretty good. That's, that's, that's impressive. But deep down, deep down, we think we've got it all under control. We're very self-sufficient. I think if we were honest, we'd probably do that more than we care to admit. Or are you like Daniel? Have your experiences with God, have they transformed the way that you live out your faith in God to the point that his spirit shines through you and it draws other people to him? There's a really big difference between being impressed with God and being transformed by him. And, and I just think we would be wise to slow down a little bit and ask ourselves this question. Learn this lesson before it wrecks our lives because that's what's going to happen to Nebuchadnezzar. He was satisfied with being impressed and it ends up not going too well for him. If you keep reading, Nebuchadnezzar describes his dream to Daniel. And like a lot of dreams, it's really odd. He says, here's the deal, Daniel. 
In my dream, there was this huge tree that could be seen all over the world. Everyone everywhere could see it, but it wasn't just tall, it was beautiful. And it produced enough fruit to feed all the inhabitants of the earth. And on top of that, all the animals of the earth found shelter in, under, or around this tree. And so as far as trees are concerned, this tree was very impressive, but that wasn't the end of his dream. Look at verse 13. Nebuchadnezzar says, In the visions I saw while lying in bed, I looked, and there before me was a holy one, a messenger, an angel coming down from heaven. And he called out in a loud voice, Cut down the tree and trim off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. Let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground in the grass of the field. And then it says this, Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. And let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass for him. And so this dream begins as this kid's bedtime story about a beautiful tree. And then somewhere along the way, it changes to this apocalyptic horror movie. And before Daniel shows up, no one can give Nebuchadnezzar a good answer. Their best guess is, hey, you probably shouldn't eat Taco Bell before you go to bed. That's, it's what, that's the problem. That's what's messing with you. But now it's Daniel's turn. Now, it's worth noting, this is really important. Between Daniel chapter 3 and Daniel chapter 4, about 30 years of time had elapsed, meaning that Daniel wasn't a teenager anymore when he's standing before Nebuchadnezzar. He was probably my age. In his early to mid-40s, he was rocking a dad body, had a sore lower back, But we learn in Daniel chapter 2, more importantly, that 30 years before, when he was a teenager, he was placed over all of the wise men of Babylon. So he would have been respected for a long time. People knew who he was. They knew what he he could do. And secondly, in Daniel chapter 1, we learn that as a teenager, he earned a reputation for being able to interpret dreams. And so Nebuchadnezzar is like, I need your help. You've got to help me. Look at verse 19. I want you to listen to Daniel's response to Nebuchadnezzar. Then Daniel was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, don't let the dream or its meaning alarm you. In other words, please just tell me what it means, Daniel. And he says, my Lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. Daniel says, I hate to be the one to tell you this, boss, but you're the tree in that dream. And in spite of all of your power and your greatness and your splendor as king, it's only a matter of time before God shows up and cuts you down because of your pride and your rebellion against him. But that's not the worst part of the dream. Look at verse 25. Then Daniel says this, you're going to be driven away from people and you're going to live with the wild animals. You're going to eat grass like an ox, and you're going to be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone that he wishes. Now, that seven times, that time period, many scholars believe it's a seven-year time frame. And so Daniel's saying, for seven years, your life is going to fall apart. Your kingdom is going to be taken from you. You're going to lose your mind. It's not going to be pretty. Now, this was not good news. And we can tell from this, Daniel did not enjoy being the messenger here. But I think we should stop and pay attention because Daniel does something that I think we, as followers of Jesus specifically, should pay attention to. 
It would have been really easy for him to celebrate the fact that this evil king was finally going to get what he deserved, right? It would have been easy for him to celebrate that because Nebuchadnezzar and his people had held Daniel and his people hostage for several years. They were, they were captives in this land, but Daniel was heartbroken. And here's, here's the lesson that we can learn from Daniel. Even though we might not like living in Babylon, even though we don't enjoy the way Babylon treats us or belittles our faith or disgraces our God, it's important that we learn to love the people of Babylon because they still matter to God. He wants the people that are far from him, that are opposed to him, to know him. And he wants to use us to build a bridge to him. But here's the problem. Let's just be honest. Don't we all enjoy watching someone get a little dose of what they deal out to everybody else? I mean, isn't there, isn't there a part of our heart that just enjoys watching people get what they deserve? We get upset when athletes leverage their position to promote their platforms, and then we celebrate when they lose. I know I'm guilty of doing that. This was a thing in the Olympics a few weeks ago when the U.S. women's soccer team lost. A lot of Americans were glad because they didn't like the ladies on the team. And that, that's kind of sad. We would cheer against our own countrymen. We cheer when a scandal erupts or another politician is exposed for immoral behavior. We eat up Hollywood gossip because we like watching powerful, popular people hurt like the rest of us. We even get excited when the guy that's been telling us to get a COVID shot gets COVID again. We're like, serves you right. Get off my back. I don't want to hear about it anymore. There's just something inside of us that enjoys watching people get a little dose of what we think they deserve. But here's the problem. That reveals a lot about our heart and a lot about our faith. And it's not good. It's not the way that God intends it. And here we find Daniel modeling something different. He was horrified at the thought of Nebuchadnezzar actually getting what he deserved. And so I think we need to learn how to follow Daniel's example. We need to learn how to move our emotions from anger to brokenness. We need to learn, instead of being angry at everyone and everything around us, to be sad, to be heartbroken. Because I, that's when I think we're going to realize I'm at a good spot for God to use me here in Babylon. Because we can fight against and we can rail against everyone else or we can say, God, this is sad. How would you want to use me to show people a better way? Because the people of Babylon matter to God. So Daniel was heartbroken to deliver this news. But I want you to pay close attention to what he says in the next couple of verses because we're going to learn something about God that actually applies to all of us. In verse 26, Daniel says this. He's speaking to Nebuchadnezzar and he says, the command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. In other words, your majesty. This is a horrible diagnosis, but if you would just be willing to admit and to acknowledge you're not God, you could save yourself a lot of pain. Just confess your stubborn pride towards God, and he's willing to spare you. Verse 27, therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what's right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. And so Daniel is standing in front of the most powerful man in the whole world. And because of his faith in God, he is able to deliver a very hard truth. And he essentially says, your majesty, you're going to lose your kingdom and you're going to lose your mind. But I hate to tell you, that is not your biggest issue. 
Your biggest issue is that your heart is proud. You are rebellious against God, and it's offensive to him. And your wealth has tricked you into thinking that you're self-sufficient. Your success has fooled you into thinking that you can save yourself. And I hate to be the one to tell you, your majesty, that God isn't impressed by your success. He's not intimidated by your power. He has no equal. You're not like him in any way. And that's a really bold and sobering message. And Daniel spelled it out as clearly as he knew how. All Nebuchadnezzar had to do was heed his advice. This is a man who he said, your, your relationship with God is different. And Daniel saying, okay, then just listen to me. Obey this thing. But instead, Nebuchadnezzar didn't listen. He actually went and worshiped, or he, he wrote a worship song, but it wasn't to God. Verse 28, all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, pay attention to these foolish words. Is this not the great Babylon that I have built as the royal residence by my power and for the glory of my majesty? I, me, my, look at what I have done. And an entire year had passed. That scary dream was a distant memory Daniel's warnings had faded, and so he says, I'm going to celebrate myself. I'm going to sing my own praises. Look at verse 31. Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people. He ate grass like an ox. His body was drenched with dew until heaven of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. Remember earlier Daniel said seven times? It's, it's understood that this is like a seven-year period. And we learned that his hair was long. His, how long would your nails have to be to look like the claws of an eagle? He was out there for a while. It was devastating. And we can't be 100% sure, but based on this description, we believe that, scholars believe that this is probably what he looked like when he came to his senses. Now we laugh, right? We laugh because that's funny, but that's not us. And this happened way off in the way back in the past. Like that would never happen to me. That that couldn't even be a thing, right? It would have been horrifying for Nebuchadnezzar. It would have been terrifying for his family, for the people of his kingdom, his entire livelihood, insanity, disintegrated in a moment, all because of his proud refusal to say, God, I'm sorry, I'm wrong. And it might be easy to roll our eyes and say, like, people don't really think that they're animals. They don't live in the wild like that. That never happened. This is like some kind of parable, right? Well, interestingly enough, if you look at the ancient Babylonian Chronicles, it records a period of time where King Nabonidus, or Nebuchadnezzar III, went off the rails for seven years. He just disappeared after showing up which helps prove this biblical account. It speaks to the validity of this story, which is good to know. All that's fascinating information, but here's the question. Maybe you're wondering like, okay, good, but what does that have to do with me? Because I'm not like King Nebuchadnezzar. I'm not powerful. I'm not wealthy. I'm not really even successful. Well, guess what? That's not the point of the story. God wasn't impressed with any of those things in, his, in Nebuchadnezzar's life, but there was something that God was very concerned about. He was concerned about it with Nebuchadnezzar, and he's concerned about it with me and you. 
It's our prideful, sinful disobedience against him. Nebuchadnezzar's sin was his arrogant self-sufficiency and his prideful rebellion against God. And you might think, but yeah, I'm not like that. Well, think of it like this. Have you ever allowed your grades to make you feel superior to your classmates? Does your success on the field or out in your field allow you to dominate people and feed your identity so you feel better than them? Do you have a job title or is your GPA higher than everybody else's? And everybody knows you're just higher at the top than they are and you can hold them down and you want them to know I'm over top of you. Do you ever secretly celebrate the fact that you think that you or your family is better than the people around you? Or maybe you look at your 401k and you think my portfolio is really diverse. No matter what happens, I'm good. I'm set. I'm in control of my own destiny. Well, I think Nebuchadnezzar probably thought all those things which means we're a lot more like him than we would ever care to realize. You don't have to be a king or a powerful ruler to struggle with pride. And it's easy for us to rely on our success or our title or our current standing to define who we are because we think we've got things under control. But I hate to be the one to tell you this. God is not impressed with your success or my success. God isn't impressed with the little bit of power that we think that we have over our life. He doesn't owe me and he doesn't owe you anything. He is all powerful. He stands alone all by himself. And so just like Nebuchadnezzar, I think we would be really wise to pay attention to Daniel's advice in verse 27. Therefore, renounce your sins by doing what is right. The more I've studied this passage, the more I'm convinced that this is the point of this whole story. When I, when I started into this, I'm thinking, how do you teach on a man's weird dream? What does that even look like? It's right here. This is the message of the gospel that resonates through all the pages of scripture. Therefore, renounce your sins and turn to God. This is why Jesus came in the first place. Because from the very beginning, scripture teaches that in his goodness towards us, God created us in his image and in his likeness. And he gave us an opportunity to live in peace with him. But our sinful rebellion, in our sinful rebellion, we just turn from him and we run away. Think about how this played out in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve first sinned, what did they do? They ran away and hid and God went looking for them, not to hunt them down or to shame them, but to pursue them so they could be restored back to him. And this has been the pattern for centuries. God is good to us, but we turn away from him. We run away from him. But he keeps pursuing us saying, I want to have a relationship with you, just like he did with Nebuchadnezzar. I want to make things right for you. I just need you to own your part. And you might think, well, he doesn't take sin very seriously then. He takes sin very seriously. This is why he sent Jesus to die in our place. Scripture teaches us that in his humanity, Jesus never Sin. He never gave in to pride and rebelled against his heavenly father. And he did that for one reason, because he wanted to lay his life down as a perfect sacrifice for me and for you to pay for every sin and every rebellion and every ounce of pride inside of us. And according to Jesus and all the writers of the New Testament, any of us that are willing to put our faith in his sacrifice on our behalf, our pride is forgiven. Our sin and our rebellion is forgotten with God because of our faith in Jesus. All he asks for us to do 
is own our part and say, yeah, I messed it up. And then to trust that Jesus can do his part to make us right with God. And here's what's fascinating about this. When you put your faith in Jesus, you don't have to work hard to make God happy. All of Jesus' goodness and his righteousness is given to you. And we don't have to try to improve any, uh, to impress anybody. We can let go of our pride and we can live for him. And so this is why Jesus is able to say, I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life. No one comes to the Father. No one's made right with him except through me because he paid the price on his own for me and for you. And that's why I'm convinced that verse 27 is the hinge of this entire chapter. It's the theme found all throughout scripture. Acknowledge your sin, repent, and turn back to God so you can be restored to him. Now, thankfully, King Nebuchadnezzar got the message. Look at verse 34. In his words, he writes, At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion and his eternal... I'm sorry, his dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? In other words, no one has any right to complain against God for what he does. But look at verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all of his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Nebuchadnezzar got the message and he wrote a beautiful worship song to the God of heaven and he encourages people to do the same. And so if you want to know what to get out of this chapter, you need to deal with your pride. I need to deal with my pride and our sinfulness. And for those of us that follow Jesus, this is an ongoing thing. We confess it and we turn back to God and we allow, we say, would you please use me to be like Daniel in Babylon to win people to you? but we got to get out of the way. But for those of us that haven't made a decision to follow Jesus, it first begins by simply admitting you have damaged your relationship with God. Confess that to him and say, I want the forgiveness that you offer through your son. And he will meet you at your point of need. He will forgive you. He will restore you. And he will put his spirit in you because he wants to use you to make an impact for this kingdom. Now, Nikki talked about this earlier, but we're going to celebrate what that looks like in a very visual way in a couple of weeks when we celebrate baptisms. Baptism is an outward expression of something that happens inside of us when we admit, I am broken. I have damaged my relationship and I am putting my trust in Jesus. And when you're baptized, you're taken down into the water and it represents your death to your old way of life. And when you're brought up out of the water, it represents Jesus's resurrection and the new life that you receive in him. And so if you have never made the decision out loud to anyone to follow Jesus, to be forgiven of your sins, to admit that you're a sinner and to be filled with his Holy Spirit, this is the time for you to do it before God chops down the pride in your life. And so if you wanna know how to respond today, you can meet us at Intro to Genesis and we can walk through some of those details. We'd love to pray with you. Or you can just walk out of here like Nebuchadnezzar and pretend like that's never going to happen to you until it does and you won't know what to do. Don't pass up this opportunity today. Now we're going to close by singing a song, I personally, that I love. I've been singing it all week and Nebuchadnezzar could have written this in his own words. 
it talks about all the things that we chase in this world that leave us empty and only fulfillment that is found in Jesus. And so as we wrap up, I'm gonna pray, but as we, as we worship, I wanna invite you to sing these words to him for how great he is and what he has done in our life. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for um, this powerful story about this evil man and this crazy dream. And the truth is it could be written about all of us and all of our wickedness and all of our pride against you. Would you help us to acknowledge that, to realize we're not as good as we think we are? We have no control. We need you. We need your forgiveness through your son, Jesus. So would you help those of us that are followers of Jesus to respond in joy? Would you break our heart towards the world around us? Would you use us to make an impact for your kingdom? But for my friends that are here that have never surrendered to you, I pray today would be the day that they would at least begin the conversation. Holy Spirit, would you move in their heart to draw them to you? We love you. It's in your great name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and worship the God of heaven together.